1: Special guest here on this Monday night edition of the Dunked On Basketball NBA podcast. Someone who I longed to have on the show, but he was working in the NBA and thus uh, we were not able to access the hidden secrets of his brain. But now we can. Uh, ben Falk, how are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, And if
1: you're not familiar with Ben, worked in the front office with both the Blazers and the Sixers under a uh, uh, cast characters, Chad Buchanan, you know, Sam Hinkie. So he's been a, a lot of places, have a lot of exposure to different styles of thinking and now he is uh, out on his own starting a great site clean the glass why did you call it clean the glass or cleaning the uh, glass sorry so,
2: yeah so um i mean I, I think it was interesting to try and come up with a name i thought it was like a little bit clever my the tagline of the site is working toward a clear view Ah, uh, yes of basketball decisions. Um, and so it's a, it's kind of a play on that phrase. Um, but I, you know, it, to me, the, the key is thinking about it in terms of basketball decisions. Uh, I think that casts a wide net in terms of what you can talk about. But fundamentally, one of the things I found that was interesting is that front office work and coaching work, most of it boils down to decision-making. And that's something yeah, that fascinates d- d- me. And David, David Blatt knows I address that. A lot on this you, site. You
1: have to make 250 uh, decisions, more than, more than a fighter pilot during a game if you're a, an NBA coach. (laughs) um so so yeah so your site is really about decision making um and i don't envy you the task of having to name an nba site in 2017 because when i tried to name my piddling site which is you know i was writing on once every two weeks it was nothing compared to yours but when i first started in nba media i came up with the team rebound which was basically like giving up i was like well there aren't any good names left so i'm just gonna pick the most mundane thing that i can think of which is the scorekeeping evil known is the team rebound, and I'm just going to call my site my site that. But I basically was giving up and like trying to hide it in like this cloak of being kind of funny. So uh that you actually came up with something good. I, I'm impressed by that.
2: <laughs> Thanks. It took a little bit of work, but I'm glad it worked out.
1: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the site. I mean, obviously your articles are great. You do a lot of film work as well. You program pretty much everything yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. That. That's. I mean, and like the video player. I know a lot of people are like, oh, this is this is really good. Um, but. Just for people who aren't familiar with the the site, and this will be a good way to transition into some of the things that we want to talk about here, um, what does your site have that really you feel like wasn't available before you started?
2: Yeah, so uh, like you said, I mean, I think uh, fundamentally it comes down to... I I learned a lot being inside the NBA, but I'm not so far removed. You know, it's been about 10 years. Uh, I'm not so far removed from having been a fan and wanting to have access to some of those stories and some of that knowledge and wanting to be able to learn. Um, and so that's a lot of what I'm trying to do in a lot of different areas um, is kind of share what I've learned over this time. Uh, and so, like you said, that comes down to articles um, and videos. And so there's, you know, articles writing about decision-making kind of behind the scenes in the NBA, um, as well as statistical analysis and other things that we can learn and videos that kind of really dive into X's and O's and what's going on in the court. Um, and then there's another component to the site, which is I built a stats site, um, which has a lot of advanced stats kind of tailored from my perspective, having worked in the league, um, you know, having come from this perspective, um, and the things that I've learned in terms of what's valuable to decision makers and how decision makers should really be looking at those stats. Um, you know, how you can kind of, uh, use those stats to get better picture of teams and players and what's going on in the league um, evaluations for trades evaluations for future performance uh any of that so um i, I built out this whole stat site which takes play-by-play data and analyzes it and then it, the big key is that it tries to contextualize it so um i think advanced stats can be very confusing to people uh often but mostly not because there's anything confusing about stats uh, i think sometimes it's that they don't have the context on which to understand what it means to absolutely them. Um, and and how they can interpret it and how they can use it and so you know if you hear that some team's free throw rate is 18.8 right <laughs> what does that mean to you it, it might not mean anything if you don't have a sense if you haven't worked with those numbers for a while and so then it kind of feels a little bit weird and scary or just useless and so what I've done on the site is I've you know any team stats I've uh, contextualized with rankings and any player stats I've contextualized by having percentiles for the player compared to to the rest of their position and so that gives you just an immediate view when you pull up a player page or a team page you don't have to look at the number if you want to look at the number and get a little bit more in-depth detail you can but you don't have to look at the actual stat itself you just have to understand what is the stat telling you and how does that compare to the rest of the league
1: yeah because that's ultimately what we're looking for is all right is this guy good at this is he not good at this is this team good at this or are they not good at this and so you can give that number and we always try on the show to contextualize a little bit of okay what's good and what's bad here when we can't. Can, but sometimes you're just you can't do that every time you, you mention a stat so that's that's really helpful to have um and i'll say this too like some of the things that i found the most useful on your site is the live game stuff or, or and box score where you have possession stats and you're actually and we've been using a lot of your league rankings as well where you filter out garbage time i want to ask you actually have you found that filtering out garbage time actually gives more reliable stats in the sense of predicting future performance? i think that kevin pelton is noted and I, and maybe Hollinger as well noted that they tried to filter out garbage time and didn't find that it really like helped their numbers at all but it, it, do you see it differently?
2: Uh, so I think part of it is depending on what your definition of garbage time yeah. is. Um, you know I I think that you can disagree on what th- that's part of the problem with garbage time. in general is because becomes very subjective. I'm using a cutoff that I think most people would agree is a situation in which the game isn't really being played the same way that it normally would be played, which is it's towards the end of the game. Um, the score is out of hand and there aren't really any starters on the yeah. court anymore. So that moment, basically, when you're watching a game and the, the teams wave the white flag and both teams take out all their good players and it's mostly bench players just on the court, um, that's kind of the moment where programmatically I mark it as garbage time um, and that data is filtered, that, that information is filtered out. So um, you know, to, to be honest, I haven't dug into what you're talking about, which is that, the predictability of, of that data, but I would be very skeptical to think that that would have much to say about future performance, particularly you know in the ways we're interested in. Um, and so this is particularly talking about teams, but, um, you know, that doesn't have anything to say about how these teams would perform in moments where their starters are on the court and or their rotation players are on the court and really engaged in trying to win a game
1: yeah and that makes sense i, I guess because i think uh, when john and kp you know, i don't want to put words in their mouth but my understanding of what they did was that they just did okay if it's after a certain time of the game and after you know a certain deficit whereas if you're doing it of like okay who's actually on the floor or any of their best players on the floor i think that is a, a much better way to look at it and I, I would agree with you i think it, that that makes a lot of sense um I mean, anything else that you really kind of wanted to I guess the other thing that I've really liked although I know there's been some issues with the NBA play-by-play so far is transition the way you you filter that out um can you explain how you kind of arrived at, at some of those numbers and um you know what the usefulness of that is I, I had a few questions about that too
2: yeah so um this as you said this is one of the things that I'm proud of that I think is is hard to get in other places is um the what I call context stat and so the way i think about it is you can you can really look at an nba possession and you can say that there's different contexts in which it's played particularly based on whether the defense is set or not um with coordinate data like sport view or second spectrum you can get a better sense of whether the defense is actually set um in this case i'm estimating from play by play um when these certain events would occur that the defense wouldn't be set so you have your normal half court defense that's the defense is set it's it's what most of the game is played um but you also have situations transition, as you mentioned, um, when the defense, you know, obviously the change of possession and the defense isn't quite set yet, uh, which is a different context. And so you have to approach it differently. You know, looking at a player who can uh, break down a defense and get to the rim against a set defense is very different than a player who can get to the rim in an open court. Um, and uh, so the same with offensive rebounds as well. Uh, I have a putback is what I call it, a putback context, which is, um, um, if there's any plays that happen immediately after an offensive rebound, again, the defense is scrambled. It's not the same as scoring against a set half-court defense. Uh, and so, again, this is all estimated from play-by-play, play, which means it's not exact. And then particularly on small samples, like on the game level, um, there can be plays that, that can skew the data a fair amount. Um, but it still can give you, you know, uh, over the course of an entire game, over the course of multiple games, it can give you a good sense of what exactly is going on uh, with a team Um in particular, uh, I think that there are some, there's some interesting analysis that can come out of it when you're filtering out half-court versus these other states. Um, so coaches, for a long time, have talked about easy points. And a lot of defensive coaches, this is one of their big focuses, um, is to make sure that the other team doesn't get easy points. And these easy points are points against a defense that isn't set, right? So this is transition, and this is putbacks. And those, you know, you can look at it historically, and those uh, situations are much more efficient for the offense, as you'd expect. the defense isn't in a set guard position. Um, And so the emphasis on easy points uh, by good defensive teams can be clearly seen in these stats you can look at teams like charlotte steve clifford's teams have always been um you know very uh uh just locked in and taking away those situations for other teams um and so again overall you're by breaking it down and slicing it into these different contexts you're getting a much more accurate and
1: in-depth picture of what teams do well yeah i've always thought too that half court knowing what the average efficiency is in the half court is an important lens to view things because you'll see oh post-ups you know 0.8 points per possession uh, on post-ups or pick and rolls uh, are you know 0.8 points per possession by the pick and roll ball handler or oh this you know a guy who gets most of his points in the half court oh he's not that efficient you know but when you're going against a set defense your baseline of success is kind of you know for averages maybe you know just eyeballing it, but 0.9 points per possession instead of you know when you take out transition and so if a player his role is just to score in the half court maybe you need to evaluate him in that context versus a guy who's Getting out in transition, and that's helping them be a lot more efficient.
2: That's a fantastic point. I think that often a lot of analysis that I, public analysis I've seen can make that mistake of comparing numbers to an overall points per possession, when an overall points per possession is including these other context transition and, and putbacks. And so it's it's particularly interesting when you think about you know as a, as a community we've talked a lot about mid range versus three point shots. Um, and to your point, if an average half court possession is uh, you know 0. 0.9 points per play, um, and you have you have an open long mid range two. You might be able to make that at forty five percent, which is an average possession for the most yeah. part. Now Especially there's offensive late rebounding involved, right? Exactly, and so I mean, yeah, those the probabilities of success and what a good shot is versus a bad shot change a lot as the shot clock diminishes. But also, like you said, it changes a lot as the context of what's going on on the court changes. Um, and so that, particularly for any kind of analysis that needs to be
1: taken into account. So one of the things I wanted to ask you too is with transition, this is part of a, a subset of things I want to talk about just in general of things that either predict performance going forward or are more random, particularly early in the season. But one of the things that you have available on your site is transition points per play. And I, I can't remember whether I read this or just as my own theory, or I arrived at the, in concert between those two things. But basically my theory is that transition points per play as a defense is essentially random right because you know you're the idea that oh we're letting them get out in transition but then we're really good at stopping them once they get into transition it, it seems like it'd be unlikely to me and so if a team is giving up a lot of transition possessions but a really low points per play on those that that's going to regress and then vice versa as well that that's always going to kind of go back to whatever the league median is for points per possession and transition against a defense is that true or is that uh is my theory wrong on that?
2: So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that was my initial perspective as well before I really dove into things. Um, and so I had to do a lot of thinking about it to understand, uh, you know, just to get to a place where I could understand what exactly was going on with the numbers. Because um, I think you're right to a large degree, which is that transition in general is a much smaller sample of the season. Um, and so, I mean, small sample size is stuff we talk about all the time and a team, a team strand in defense, uh, for example, might be allowing 45% shooting from three. And that might not just be because they're giving too many wide open shots. It might just be because the sample small enough and they happen to get unlucky or teams were hot against them or um, anything like that. And so relying too much on that number, particularly in short uh, portions of the season, is problematic. Um, the thing is, over the longer haul, the, the overall impact of how good your transition defense or offense is has a lot more to do with your efficiency in those stages than your frequency Um, and so again I I thought about this for a while and I think you know where I arrived at is that you have to think about transition as this kind of sliding scale not every transition opportunity it's not there is a transition opportunity or it's not it's um, there's kind of a gradient of transition opportunities from amazing opportunities to to basically almost half court defense right so you can think about someone gets a steal and has a one on zero uh, fast break that's a very different different transition opportunity then the defense is scrambled but it's a five on four and so teams that have can have more players that get back players that get back more and in better position they might not be able to fully take away transition and say okay this isn't a transition opportunity anymore this is half court but they might be able to make the quality of those looks in transition um, much worse another way to think about this is you can think about what the rockets have done in terms of pushing the envelope with taking early threes um, and trying to get out an. Transition. And it can definitely be the case that those are still better than half court possessions. But as a team, you could get out, you could go and say, We want everything to be in transition. And so we're just going to come down and shoot a ton of early threes. And in that case, your transition frequency would go way up, uh, but your transition efficiency would go down a lot because of exactly what we just talked about. The quality of that transition opportunity isn't the same as some others.
1: And maybe you haven't looked at this. That all be- makes perfect sense that I hadn't looked at it that way. Is there evidence that there are teams who consistently can reduce their opponents' points per possession in transition?
2: Uh, So, yeah, I haven't looked at that too carefully. I think there are teams that have consistently, um, you know, I I can go back and look. at. I think there are teams that have consistently been able to lower transition, you know, over long periods of time, lower that transition efficiency. Um, You'll see, to your point, you'll see some of the stylistic elements of teams, the teams that really prioritize uh, reducing transition opportunities for their opponents that comes through much clearer in frequency um, or or even again on the offensive end the teams that really prioritize getting out and running that comes through much clearer in frequency because as we've just been discussing and as you noted that is much more controllable by the teams by the offense or the defense Um, and it takes a little bit more time for uh, the efficiency to kind of get you know the sample to get large enough that the noise reduces and you get more of a signal of what these teams are doing Um, but again I think that these teams over time have been able to increase their efficiency or decrease opponent efficiency consistently
1: all right we're gonna get into a lot more with ben maybe even not quite as nerdy stat dorky stuff but uh whenever i talk to him i I start just picking his brain like this but uh, we'll uh have a quick word here and then we'll be right back uh with ben falk so i tried for years and years to find suits that fit me and you know back in college i was going to like men's warehouse or law school then when I became a lawyer, I was like, all right, you know, enough of these ill-fitting suits. I'm going to spend more money and that, uh, throw money at the problem and that's going to help. Well, it didn't really because it was still an off-the-rack suit and I'm not shaped like a lot of guys. I have big shoulders and if I got something that fit my shoulders, it was like a tent on me and they would try and tailor it and it would take like three weeks for them to tailor it at, at these department stores and I'd be spending $1,000 and it still just didn't fit me the way I want it to. Now with Indochino, that is no longer a problem they make it easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at an incredible price. You can get their best deal ever at $359 for any premium suit. When you enter my code CAPSPACE, easy to remember, because we talk about CAPSPACE all the time on the program, at checkout. 50% off the regular price for a made to measure premium suit. You can either go into one of their North American showrooms or they have a great tutorial on their website for how to measure yourself. For me, three to four weeks later, that suit came in, shipping was free, and those are my favorites. I always start the season off wearing my Indochino suits. At first, I'm probably even gonna use them for suits or sport jackets. We haven't decided what we're gonna do yet uh, at my wedding. So that's Indochino.com, promo code CAPSPACE, and that'll get you any premium suit for just $359 with free shipping, and you'll have a suit that'll fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. So here we are in the early season. A lot of teams play well early. You wonder, all right, is this gonna continue? Is it not going to continue? And we could talk about some specific examples Examples. But first of all, what is it that you really can look at as when you're trying to determine is from a number standpoint, is this team's performance fluky or might it continue? So I, I
2: think this is just a really interesting question. And like you say, this is the time of year where we're all wrestling with that. You have some surprising teams and you say, OK, are they for real? Um, and so I wrote about this uh, with regard to the Orlando Magic last week on Cleaning the Glass um, and kind of dove into the Magic performance. The Magic's performance, um, both because I think they were a big surprise, and also because their style of the reason why they were surprised was also pretty interesting um, and illuminating in some ways. And so I dove into looking at the correlation between certain stats early in the season for till the rest of the season, and basically trying to answer your question: what stats are more reliable than others? What stats can tell us more early on um, about how the team is going to perform the rest of the way? And uh, the conclusion is basically that. These stylistic elements of teams are much more stable than whether, uh, than kind of sm- some of the more success or failure types of stats. So, the best example of that is um, what I call a shot profile, where a team is taking their shots from or where their defense is forcing shots from. Um, that's much more stable. That's much more about the style of a team than whether those shots go in or not. Um, and so, this gets us into I mean, there's a lot of uh, reasons why you could talk about uh, why that's the case. Um, But it gets us into kind of the nature of some of these stats um, and how they change over time and, you know, what stats you need more of a sample for, um, which you can learn things from, uh, you can learn a lot from earlier.
1: Yeah. So if you're just a a fan and you've got two minutes to look at at a team's overall statistical resume and just kind of eyeball and be like, all right, do we think that this is going to continue or not? Give me like your top four or five things that you would want to look at.
2: Uh, so the, the thing that I look at a lot is shooting results um, for exactly that reason. And um, what I want to know is I want to say, OK, how much of their success is being driven by stats that we think could be more fluky than others? And so the flukiest stats tend to be uh, jump shooting um, and in particular three point shooting. And so, it, you know, in that Orlando Magic article, uh, I found that I was comparing the first seven games to the rest of the season and you found that three point shooting had three point percentage had the least correlation um, and in particular opponent three-point shooting uh, which I think is interesting in its own right. Even over the course of multiple seasons it has lower correlation. In particular and you, you limit the sample so much uh, it basically has zero correlation so how a team's opponents shoot from three in their first seven games is completely uncorrelated with how they shoot from three in the rest of the season. Um, and so that's where I turn because I would say okay if a team success and this, this is why the Magic works so interesting to me and why I wrote about them. Their early success was largely driven by extreme three-point shooting numbers on both ends. They were shooting very well from three, and opponents were shooting very poorly against them from three. And so you look at that and you say, based on history, those thing, those uh, numbers do not seem so sustainable. And therefore, relative to another team that started the year five and two, you um, would think that they would be a lot more likely to regress back towards what we would have expected from them.
1: Okay and so another team that's had a much better than expected offense earlier in the season is indiana they have had a top five offense and they're a team that in my apparently stupid subjective possession or or, uh, projections i felt like just looking at their personnel that they could maybe even be like a bottom five offense or at least a bottom 10 offense is this offense with them for real so
2: i think it's really funny that you said that um you said that in a self-deprecating way but i actually think that's really important uh and so so Okay, so to answer your your question, I'll come back to that in a second. To answer your question, I think that we can look at certain indicators and say, okay, so with Indiana, we see that they're a low turnover team, um They're getting a high percentage of their shots at the rim. Those are good indicators that tend to be a little bit more stable. Um, on the other hand, a lot of their offensive success is because they've hit mid-range shots at a very high rate. So that's jump shooting. And in particular, they've hit corner threes at a very high rate. Almost 50% of their corner threes they've made. Um, those, Both of those are much less sustainable. And so you, you put that together with what you just said, which is we had expectations of them coming in that they were not going to be a good offensive team. And you should be much more skeptical of... their offensive performance and so I highlighted what you said about the projections um, because I think that it's a really important element of how we think about stats and really how we think about a lot of things in the world Um, and in this early season there's a tendency for us to look at the data that we have in front of us and say that's all that matters Um, that oh this is their performance and these are their stats and therefore that's how we should expect them to continue to perform and that's a really dangerous way to interpret data because we we actually know a lot more about the world and about what our expectations should be than what what we've seen in 510 games yeah,
1: you, you know it's tough though because for me especially like I have my opinions but I also don't want to be so arrogant that like oh well I know better than what these actual results have been on the floor just because like I projected that it was gonna be and I'm not doing like a rigorous statistical analysis before I mean I look at that stuff but I also am just like okay you know Darren Collison and Corey Joseph and Futurola Depot, their records coming in don't really indicate that they're going to be like elite ball handlers and they don't really have like any creators on the wing. And so they're uh, they could really struggle offensively. You know, that was my thinking. But I don't want to be too wedded to that just because like, oh, well, I thought it was going to be this way uh, when they've been better.
2: Right. So I think that's that's a really uh, healthy viewpoint because I think there's dangers on both sides. I think that's kind of what we're getting at is that there's you can a mistake that a lot of people make is they're too anchored to these prior beliefs. They have some idea coming in. They think that's the way the world works. No matter how much evidence is in front of them that they're wrong, they refuse to change it. Instead, they decide to warp the evidence to fit these uh, prior beliefs. That is a big danger on one side. Um, But there's another danger, which is you can't just go whichever the way the wind blows. Um, And so that is a lot of the art of trying to figure out these projections in general and and really decision-making in general is what's the proper way to update your beliefs as more information comes in. Um, And so what One of the analogies I like to think about People who work with statistics love coin flip analogies, so I'll continue with that. Um, but if you if you found a coin on the ground and you flipped it and it landed on tails, um, what is your best guess for the chance that it lands on tails the next flip or the flip after that? The answer isn't 100%, just because in the past it landed once on tails. Um, and the reason why is because you know things about coins in general. Uh, you know that there's a lot of evidence out there in the world that coins tend to be about 50-50 flips. Um Um, And so the fact that you have one piece of evidence, one observation of this one coin, that it landed on tails, doesn't mean that you should change the, you should update your beliefs about all coins in general or this coin, and you should say, oh, it's always going to land 100% of the time on tails. Now, if you flip it 100 times in a row and it lands on tails every single time, your best guess at that point is that something is weird with this coin, yeah. right? Like, this is not a normal coin, and your best guess for the 101st flip is not 50-50. Um, and so somewhere in between, there's kind of this sliding scale that as you keep flipping it, as it keeps landing on tails, you start to become more and more skeptical that this is actually a real coin. Um, And you have to start updating your beliefs about what's going on. That's kind of the world we're living in now, which is we have some belief, let's say, with the Pacers offense. um, And, you know, we don't want to be anchored to that so much that 100 flips in a row and we still say the Pacers offense is bad. Um, But we also don't want to say, you know, one flip and and everything is different. And again, that's a lot of the art to this. Um, And so exactly what we were just talking about, trying to dig into why are they succeeding and are these reasons that are more stylistic or more more you know are they more process based or results based um that can tell us some things and then again as the as you get more data as the season goes on and they continue to surprise and beat your expectations you should start to legitimately update your beliefs and um you know, this is what statistical analysis can help us do is figure out what's the right rate uh, to do that. Um, I I think, you know, my gut would tell me right now, Indiana's offense is is about fifth. Based on this analysis, I think we shouldn't think they're a top five offense. We probably shouldn't think they'll end up as a top 10 offense, given what you said about our prior beliefs coming into the season. But we probably, we should feel pretty sure that they're not going to end up as a bottom five offense. Um, And I think they will probably end up somewhere in the middle of the pack.
1: Yeah, which would actually be a lot better than we thought that they would be. One of the other development questions that has always fascinated me and i always felt that whichever team could unlock this of just knowing you know other than just based on what's in games who's a good shooter or who can improve at shooting um especially from three you know there's so many guys who get drafted who have the tools to defend on the wing and and are athletic but you know oh if this guy can shoot you know he's going to be a real player and i think having two-way players on the wings is one of like the greatest things that separates the good teams from the bad teams in today's NBA Um, so what do you think is something that you can look at for shooting other than just okay here's what percentage this guy shot in a game because you know there's been a lot of research that it takes tons and tons of attempts multiple seasons of attempts from three to really lock in on on what a guy potentially is uh, as a shooter
2: so I think that this is one of the big challenges you know we're talking a lot about three-point shooting um, which is fascinating because it's obviously become more and more uh, an important part of the modern game and yet the nature of Of it is that the samples are small, and so it's a lot more random, and it becomes a lot more difficult to really, you know, home in on and and, uh, get a lot of information about. And so um, I think that's kind of what your question is getting at is, you know, now this is even more important, and yet it still remains very difficult to predict. Um, So I think that the challenge is, I mean, when I state it that way, the challenge is that there's not enough data. And the question is, how do you find ways to get more data uh, to help that can help? form those projections yeah. and what um, i would
1: do is just i'll go before games and just watch guys shoot because that's really especially for guys who aren't really playing that much like to know whether someone is really improved or, i mean that's that's all i've got is just looking at a guy shoot in pregame a lot of times
2: yeah so i think that's a fantastic way uh to gain more data i think that you know a lot of scouts they're big believers in in getting to games early and watching those warm-ups uh for exactly that reason it increases the sample size it gives you a, a better sense now it can be misleading because it isn't exactly a game situation. But again, when you're dealing with something where you have very limited data, trying to increase that sample is is very valuable. Um, I, that's why, you know, when people look at predicting uh, three-point percentage from college shooting, uh, that's one of the reasons why free throw percentage is actually valuable in helping you predict NBA three-point shooting, um, is that Three-point shooting is a lot more variable, and so players, especially if they come out of their freshman year, they might have 150 three-point attempts, and they might have shot 40%. And that's a small enough sample that you can't really be sure that they're a 40% three-point shooter. Um, and yeah, so dude, just knowing ask, that uh, they a, <laughs>
1: on that one <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Um, and and the knowing what they shot from the line um, and whether they had a, a successful, repeatable uh, stroke from the line can tell you something about it doesn't tell you everything but it tells you something about how they might be able to shoot from three in the future um, and so you know your point about warm ups is a great one that's one way to increase the sample there's other ways um, that you might try to increase that sample or get a better sense of what exactly is going on and not making it um, as uh, concrete as they made or they missed that shot so uh, as an example if you had a way let's just throw feasibility out the window for a second oh, I, think, and, I, I and like where this. you're
1: going here because I've always, I've always felt that like this would be something that teams should do i always felt they should do this in football too right with like kickers where it's like okay it's just a made field goal or a missed field goal like track like how close to the center it actually is and like so you see how you know do guys have a lot of bad misses and i've never really you know had the resources to get into tracking that especially for draft prospects but like you know maybe looking at even a guy's misses more than their makes, or or if the ball like rims in or something a lot you know i mean especially in like a college sample like you have four or five threes that just happen to rim in and you get lucky you know maybe that's uh, something that's going to really affect things too.
2: Exactly. And I think you know one of the things I like to do is take that step back and say throw feasibility out the window and just dream if you can have any <laughs> of that data. And then, you know, a lot of times you, it's nothing you can actually get to, but sometimes you can actually think about, oh, there might be a way to hack our way closer to it than we are now. And so exactly what you're saying is, um, you know, collecting more data on shooting. So, uh, yeah, the ability to say, you know, how many bad misses do they have? What is... Um, the you know one thing that we talk about a lot coaches and scouts talk about with shooting is uh the repeatability of a stroke um can you you know is your shooting form something that is is uh uh, consistent from attempt to attempt and so you look at some of the great shooters in history ray allen they always say is is um you know he had the most consistent stroke from shot to shot to shot to shot to shot and so if you had some way to look at and say okay either the, the shooting form is changing a lot or um probably a little more feasible is is the misses are all over the place um that might tell you that like you say that maybe they're shooting well but their shots are you know highly variable um you would probably be a lot more skeptical of whether they could continue that uh positive shooting um similarly more data in terms of just the context of threes not all threes are are created equally and so if a player is shooting 33 percent from three which we might think of as a bad mark but they're doing it off the dribble against highly contested shots we might interpret that very differently than if they're shooting to 33% from three on wide open spot up looks.
1: Sure, one thing I want to ask you too, I think it was on Zach's podcast that you mentioned this initially that the organizations you used to work for, I know a lot of teams do this, used to track shooting in practice and you would hear back in the day, oh Ben Gordon, you know, every time he shoots 100 threes, he makes 85 of them or Ray Allen, you know, makes 87 threes for every 100 that he shoots in practice, but in your experience like how do you find that just, you know, shooting in practice on open looks looks translates to your shooting percentage even just on open looks in a game so
2: i you know i I didn't know what to expect when i started diving into that data uh because i think you can make an argument for both ways so again you know you're looking at at practice data it's a very controlled environment uh it's not the same as shooting in games um obviously there's nobody contesting the shot it's a wide open spot up three uh it's you know you're shooting a number of them in a row sometimes you know we didn't necessarily differentiate between um, that the exact drill that they were doing sure. when they were shooting the yeah, if you're, those, if you're, so you're coming off a difficult or, drill.
1: or something like that like Steph Curry with all, like he everyone knows his crazy warm up you know he probably makes uh, about 60% I remember like CSN Boston at the height of uh, Warriors mania like tracked how many he made in his warm up and it was like 60% you know and that's the best shooter in the world but he, he makes his practice shots hard too
2: right exactly so those are c- confounding factors to this type of analysis but uh, it turned out when I looked at the data that it actually matched up pretty well, uh, so you could look and you could see, um, and and you know particularly with the Sixers when Brett Brown is a, a very open-minded coach, and uh, as I mentioned on, on Zach Lowe's podcast, he uh, believed that you know if, if a player wanted to become a three-point shooter, they should work on it, and once they hit a certain mark, um, then they should be given the green light. Uh, and so a lot of our players were shooting threes, even players that particularly uh, or that possibly and other teams might not have even. And shot threes in practice, and so that gave you a good sense of okay, this is what these types of players do. And what I found is there were some uh, pretty clear groupings that matched up to what you'd expect to actual uh, results on the court. Um, there were occasionally some outliers, uh, but it was very interesting, and and it was helpful exactly to what we were talking about, which is it's a way to increase the sample and give you a little bit more uh, reliability in what you're seeing uh, from the stats. So I remember uh, Jeremy Grant. There was one year where I think. He started shooting threes uh, very well, and that's obviously been a hole in this game. Um, he has kind of a, a funky shooting form, and you know, a big thing would be if you could unlock the three-point shot for Jeremy Grant, it would change his value and, and uh, change his ability to uh, impact the play on the court. And um, so he started shooting very well from three. And the question was, is something really different? And you dove into the numbers, and you found that in his practice shooting, uh, he was slightly improved, but he still was very close to the group um that were essentially non-shooters yeah. he was you know on that end of the scale and that gave you some sense that okay this is probably more likely to be fluky than not and sure enough uh, he regressed back towards uh more what you would have expected yeah.
1: so maybe I'll, i could start calling that uh, either the jeremy grant or the, or the kj mcdaniel's <laughs> rules <laughs> as, as, right. as well because uh, he, he had such a, a hot start in his first year that, that he's never really been able to recapture so so what is the difference i mean if a guy is shooting you know how much of a discount do you take from a guy's practice shots you know what do you what do you guys who shoot 40 percent shoot in practice what do you guys who shoot 35 percent shoot in practice what do guys who probably shouldn't be taking threes shoot in practice
2: yeah so based on the numbers i looked at um so the players who shouldn't be taking threes or were on the low end, probably sub 30 percent three-point shooters we would say um they would make about uh, 40 to 50 percent of their threes in practice um and then you would have kind of the the next the middle tier like the 50 to 60% range in practice, they were the, the so-so shooters. Um, and then once you got above 60%, those were the best shooters on the team. Um, you know, those were high 30s, potentially low 40s. Um, and so, you know, it was interesting. The, the, one of the big outliers during my time with the Sixers was Luke Bahamute, um, who, you know, we were encouraging. He was, he was not shooting threes at the time, and we were encouraging uh, him to shoot threes. And he actually, he put up, I think, maybe the most threes in practice of any player we had and shot them very well it was I think it was above 60 percent in practice and so you looked at that and you said oh there's there's something here like he should be able to shoot and yet in game after game after game he just couldn't hit I think he ended up either 28 percent on the year or 28 percent on his non corner threes um you know somewhere where he was much closer to the non-shooting group and so those are I mean like any data you can't trust it 100 percent uh you have to have a sense that there are going to be outliers in either direction but it was interesting to think about why there was that disconnect
1: yeah do you uh, recall anyone because we've heard I think Markel Foltz has been described this way as a game shooter you know I mean obviously not where he is right now but in the past you know as guys who kind of shoot it if not better in games you know better than would be expected kind of based on their practice results anyone like that come to mind where that actually you know was a consistent thing for them
2: um I mean no one off the top of my head I I think that's a hard phenomenon to really analyze well because the question is is there something about the game that gets them? Them to shoot differently yeah. that seems unlikely to me i mean potentially you could speculate adrenaline or something like that um so then the next question would be okay the context of the shot very different uh you know is it that they're what do people when they say that do they mean that a player is much better shooting off the dribble or against the contest than you'd expect um potentially because it changes their form in some way yeah. that actually makes them a better shooter i, I could buy that yeah.
1: like a um, nick young jamal crawford jo- jordan crawford type like these kind of difficult shot makers uh you know it's, it does seem like maybe for example that like it's not even that they are like great at shooting those it's just that it degrades them less than it might for a normal player maybe just because they're used to taking those for whatever reason that that's just a theory right
2: right and I think that's actually this is one of uh, something that I think is is very interesting is um you're kind of getting at people grade them on a curve it's not that they're making more shots it's that they're making much a much higher rate of shots than you'd expect given the conditions uh, and I think that's actually Actually a really interesting uh, distinction to make with players. As I often talk about, there are players who are uh, tough shot makers and then there are players who don't even take tough shot, right? Um, I think that, you know, so the, the archetypes of those in my head are, you know, the, the Rudy Gay from a few years ago, um, you know, when he was a max player versus, uh, say, James Harden, where, uh, you know, Rudy Gay, it was very good and highly thought of because he was very good at making difficult shots he could rise up over you and hit contested mid-range jumpers at a much higher rate than most players could Um, but they were still contested mid-range jumpers and so that wasn't the most efficient play whereas somebody like James Harden uh, is so good at creating efficient shots whether at the rim or from three or for his teammates um, or getting to the line and so in a lot of ways they're very different styles of player and it's interesting that I think sometimes uh, when we talk about players we don't focus on that distinction enough where they're both really good but one way of being really good is much more valuable to a team than another I
1: right let's take a quick break here we'll be right back uh, with ben falcon to ask him about uh, what's interesting him early on uh, in this nba season blinds are something that you usually don't think about until for me my tenant asked me to put some up in the place that i'm renting out i didn't really know uh, where to start but it just so happened that right about that time blinds.com came on as a sponsor and she was able to work with them to find the perfect roller blind for the apartment that she liked, that I liked, that wasn't overly expensive. I also recommended blinds.com to my friend who's going to be the best man in my wedding. They got these great blackout shades for their bedroom. His wife has trouble sleeping, and those have really helped her a lot. And now I'm about to use blinds.com again because I just moved into this new place, and it has... A lot of beautiful windows, but they need some blinds, especially because it gets a little hot during the day. So very excited to get together with Danielle, the rep that I worked with at Blinds.com again and you should do the exact same thing by going to blinds.com and using that promo code cap space which will get you 20% off everything whether it's faux wood blinds cellular shades roller shades blackout shades whatever you need blinds.com promo code cap space easy to remember because we talk about cap space all the time on the program will get you 20% off rules and restrictions apply that's blinds.com promo code cap space yeah so just uh, as you've been watching games uh, so far this year like what's really stood out to you that uh as is- an Either from a statistical standpoint or or from a scouting standpoint, anything that you've just been kind of locked in on that you're trying to learn a little bit more about in this NBA and that you're really curious to see how it's going to turn out?
2: So, for a lot of the reasons that we just discussed, uh, this is kind of time of year where I'm just trying to take in a lot right now. Um, So there's nothing that I'm super locked in on, but I'm just trying to get a sense of what's going on. Um, I, I, you know, I find it uh, just very exciting every year to figure out what's going on with these new teams, learning more about um, you know how coaching coaching staffs that may have adjusted their schemes, how new players are fitting in. Um, And so, you know, one of the things I think uh, is is fascinating about the NBA at this time of year year, um, or just really at kind of at this moment in, in the history of the NBA, is that you have this kind of arms race that's going on uh, where teams have, you know, so there's some kind of scheme, there's some kind of um, defense that has been thrown out or some uh, X's and O's kind of action or pattern or set um, that might be effective and that other teams have started to key in on. Uh, and a lot of times this happens over the off season. you know, they'll see things As The season goes, uh, coaches will see things that other teams are doing, um, you know, either against them or in games they're scouting for upcoming opponents. And they'll take notes. And a lot of times in the offseason, they go back and they revisit and they say, Oh, you know what? This worked a lot. Let's see what we can do. And right now, with this, there's just so much video. There, you have um, stats, you have so much, so many resources that allow coaches to learn from each other uh, very quickly. And so you get this arms race where teams are adopting what other teams do, it's spreading. And then and now they have to come up with counters as the season goes, um, as the season goes on, and as the years go on. And so you kind of you have these back and forths, um, and that's kind of how the game is evolving. And I think evolving maybe a little bit more rapidly uh, than it used to. And so I, those are things that I find interesting to watch for: um, is to say, okay, how are teams uh, adopting other other aspects, other strategies from other teams, and then how are they
1: countering it? Yeah. What are a couple that you've seen so far?
2: So I think you know one of the uh, one of the big um, themes that we've talked about a lot is is switching. Um, and so you know i I wrote about this on cleaning the glass in the playoffs, um, which is are there more creative ways to counter switches? Um, and uh so i think that what you're seeing a lot of is um i think the natural reaction to people for for coaches was that when a team switches you attack the mismatch you go one-on-one one One of those mismatches is something that is exploitable by your offense Um, and because there's a reason why they started off matched up the other way in the first place Um, and i think what golden state has kind of shown over the last few years they've been very good at not bogging down in isolations when they have a mismatch but instead continuing to play their offense and finding other other ways to uh, counter those switches so I, there's kind of a host of ways to do it um, but I think you're seeing more of teams doing things like slipping pick and rolls when they anticipate a switch coming um, or you'll see uh, some of these I think this is something that uh, has Utah has long done and teams are doing a little bit more is you can attack the mismatch by so a lot of times the smaller player he has a big man on him and he spaces way out behind the three point line and then he catches the pass on a dead run so he
1: can really use the speed to his advantage
2: little wrinkles like that yeah. that teams are getting a lot more adept at
1: using you, you in order to you yeah, mentioned to the yin and yang of that too like uh at when golden state uh, this is a play that stood out to me a couple weeks ago golden state when david west was on the floor i can't remember whether, whether it was uh toronto or, or washington that did this but they tried to do that same thing so the guy who west was guarding he switched onto a guard he gave it up and then they knew where they were going to throw the pass right back to that guy so he could attack on the move and west knew the pass was coming right back to him and he stole it you know like that's just a little like the (laughs) little yin and yang like every you know you do a strategy three or four times and then smart players see it on film and they can react to it exactly
2: i think that's what like i say is so interesting about the nba particularly in this day and age is that teams are learning faster than ever from each other and players are learning faster than ever and so you kind of you see this this chess match but kind of in hyper speed all
1: right uh what else are, are you just in general about basketball i mean just about why teams win and lose like what are some of the questions that are, are interesting you right now that you're just trying to learn more about that maybe we don't know the answer to yet like what are some of those holy grails that you mentioned earlier where it's like all right if we had infinite resources or, or you know just pie in the sky if you wanted to answer some questions like what would those be
2: um so i wrote about some of my preseason questions on cleaning the glass uh and so i you know, I think some of the interesting trends that I'm looking at uh, that I referenced in those articles, um, where so one of them is is this dynamic we've talked about it a lot is you know the only one ball idea is as these stars team up, how do offenses leverage uh, their stars in ways that it's not just you know you take turn, it's your turn and now it's my turn and we trade off. Um, and so seeing the experiments, we haven't been able to really see it in Houston yet because of Chris Paul's injury, but seeing uh, how OKC is starting to kind of leverage you know starting to in some ways and, and then in other ways not yeah um, but how do leverage. you think
1: they've done so far what have they been doing uh to try and uh, use all three of those guys
2: so i think that there are definitely instances in which they've had some creative sets um and they've found ways to have uh multiple of them involved at once and put the defense in difficult positions uh had to make choices that are made more difficult because you have multiple stars that you're guarding um i do think that there's still more evolution uh um, for them, there, there's more room left to improve um, because I think a lot of times they they do utilize uh, Carmelo Anthony or Paul George as more of a spot up shooter um, than uh, is maybe ideal, uh, where it just it just doesn't put as much pressure on the defense um, as if you could involve them in in slightly more creative ways. Now, one of the benefits of why those players can work together, and this is you know I wrote about, um, is that it, Carmelo and Paul George are both very good spot up shooters. Um, you know, just looking at their baseline three point numbers uh, as we discussed earlier is a little bit misleading because they take a lot of or in the past they've taken a lot of threes off the dribble um, and a lot of times contested threes and so if you look at just their catch and shoot numbers they actually are quite good spot up shooters um, which makes it more likely for this this trio to work well together Um, but I still think that there's room particularly when you get to the playoffs um, for them to improve and be able to play against some of these best defenses where they're really maximizing the combination of those stars
1: yeah I I agree I mean I mean i've been the fact that they just don't really seem to move the ball from side to side that much and that they don't really at least to my eyes have a system where you know there's just something to fall back on i i like a lot of their like set plays seem to work pretty well and they've like paul george in particular has done a nice job of slipping screens when the, he and carmelo screen for each other and they've done some nice stuff with george coming off of pin downs but it does seem like it's all very set piece type of stuff they don't necessarily have the improvisation yet and maybe they won't get there there. um another this is a really like esoteric question i probably should have had it in the first section but i'm, I'm just jumping around here because i had this whole list of things i had a theory and i did some very baseline research on it that turnovers forced other than steals and i think you'd account for this on the site of like with the numbers on live ball turnovers but the fact that it's just turnovers and it doesn't really uh a lot of the numbers don't separate out steals against basically like what your live ball turnovers are versus you know just losing the ball out of bounds or traveling or or something like that my theory is that turnovers other than steals um are basically random and that really if you're looking you want to predict turnover rate going forward that you should look at either steals against or the number of steals that that your defense is getting is that do you think that theory has any merit or uh, am i wrong so i think i'd obviously have to dig
2: in and study it i feel like i've read i've read a study in the past that might have said something similar if i'm remembering it correctly um but i think that this is it, it this plays into the theme of what we've been talking about, um, you know, through this whole conversation, uh, is that one of the things that's interesting in in data analysis is that you do account for um, just a a lot of different elements as you're trying to answer questions like that. And so one of the things, the point being, you can't just always rely on the data and what it says. Um, You have to include other pieces of information as you think through this. Um, And so I think that uh, if you're correct, it could be one of these phenomena that um, like three point shooting, um, so opponent three-point shooting is is a good example of this. Is uh, There's a lot of talk. And in fact, uh, on the discussion board on Cleaning the Glass, um, there's been a whole very fascinating discussion where people are uh, um, have been trying to talk through and looking at research and things like that about opponent three-point percentage and whether defenses actually have control over that or not. I think this the question you just asked fits into that very well, um, because what it comes down to is there is an element that you can think through from how the game works, and you start from the game up instead of from the stats down is kind of how i I like to think about it um that you can say okay there's arguments for both ways um and i think so to answer your question more directly i think that there are definitely there's players who take more charges we know that um you know there's lots of reasons to think that uh that traveling violations as an example can be forced by good closeouts um you know you can kind of come up with a lot of these different scenarios in which these are dead ball turnovers that are indeed forced by the defense and I think that's a distinction you're making yeah. more, which is um, forced turnovers versus unforced turnovers. Um, and so to your point, there are while there are unforced turnovers that are liable, there are probably fewer of those uh, than there are unforced turnovers that are dead ball. And I think that's really the key is if we could have some measure of is that turnover forced or not. Um, and so you're probably getting to a, a situation in which with dead ball turnovers, a much higher percentage of them are not forced, combined with the fact that the sample is still pretty small. And this is something um you know it's a mistake that i think is made in a lot of statistical analysis is um i think that the phrase goes that uh absence of evidence is not evidence of absence Uh, and so that means that you know you know just because the statistical analysis shows that there's you know you don't find any evidence for it in the statistical analysis that doesn't mean that it's not true Um, it just means that your study might not have enough power you might not have enough data resolution you might not have enough precision um, to really dive into it, and Bill James is actually, um, he famously, he, he wrote an article called uh, Underestimating the Fog, um, and he talks about that kind of as the fog of statistical analysis, where um, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there, and his analogy is, he said, imagine a soldier who's trying to see if they're invading army coming, but it's very foggy, and so the soldier looks out and you know has a very high-powered flashlight and looks everywhere and can't see another, <laughs> and can't see an army. It doesn't mean that the army is not actually there. Um, it just means they might not have had the tools to see it and so he points out a lot of uh, aspects of uh, baseball analysis where he believes people have made mistakes Um, one of the biggest ones is clutch play is clutch hitting where he says you know there's been a conclusion for a long time that there's no such thing as clutch hitting that it's just you know a figment of our imaginations Um, and that and the reason why they say that is because you can't find it statistically but it says you know that's because it's hidden in the fog it could be hidden in the fog to some degree, Um, we just don't have enough uh, data resolution and enough of a sample size to really be able to show it. And so I think there's similar debates in the NBA, the hot hand being one of them. Um, And I think with opponent three-point percentage um, and this exact same thing with forced turnovers, I think that that's another situation there, which is it's very hard to conclude, uh, to to find anything conclusive statistically because of that fog. And so my approach is you obviously need to look at that data, but you also need to think about it from the ground up, um, kind of from the dynamics of the way basketball works and that can help lead you closer to a right answer
1: yeah my theory on the hot hand is that while it may exist if they continued taking the exact same shots that they're taking that the fact that you are more likely to take a bad shot because you are quote- unquote hot almost cancels that out i think there's there's some research that purported to conclude that I didn't dive into the study but I mean it, that always kills me when guys like come down and just chuck something because you know there's a reason you got hot like i think that there are things that make you you get hot, like maybe you're just your legs feel really good that day, or you have a really good matchup, or whatever. But why you would deviate from the things that got you hot in the first place is, is always kind of annoys me,
2: yeah. So, I it's a great point. I think that the conclusion of that study was that there may be a hot hand, but people's belief in the hot hand is much stronger than the actual existence yeah, yeah. of it, and so they change their behavior. Yeah, I mean, we all have seen so many games where someone comes down and jacks a three, and everyone's like, heat check, right. Like, as if they've made the previous few shots, and so therefore, you know, they're going to turn a 15% shot into a 40% shot somehow. Um, and so that, you know, skews the data and creates that fog that we were just talking about. Um, I, you know, personally, I I, uh, I don't know that I would say, like, I'm a believer in the high hand, but I think that the debate has kind of gotten off the rails uh, to some extent, um, because I think that what I'm a believer in is that every shot has a different probability, and it makes sense to me that there would be reasons exactly like you're saying, you your legs feel good. Um, you got a lot of sleep the night before. Whatever it is, there's a reason why multiple shots in a row can have a much higher probability, um, and that's basically what we're talking about when we're saying that the hot hand exists. Um, and so I think that, I mean that I, I think that that has to be true. Whether you can figure it out from the data, I think, is very difficult. Um, and it goes again, it's the same kind of fog aspect, right? You know, it's it's almost impossible to find what that true underlying probability is of each shot, uh, and therefore, you know, it, it confuses us in some way. But because of that that doesn't mean i mean to to the point we just made it doesn't mean you should react to it in some way where you've made two shots in a row and now all of a sudden that gives you the green light to take a terrible shot because
1: that's what it's all about is how are you going to use this data for decision making i think probably so many people have been interested by this idea of the hot hand perhaps because it's sexy as sexy as uh stat dorkery gets i I suppose to debunk anything that is conventional wisdom and so i think people have really tried to do that but that particular question seems to have gotten way more attention and resources devoted to it than something where it's like, OK, you know, two or three shots a game. This guy is going to either decide to take this shot or we're going to try to get it to him because it's hot. it really doesn't affect your actual decision making that much on a game to game basis.
2: Yeah. So I think you know me well that I just I'm much more of a subscriber to kind of nuance yeah. <laughs> and I don't like dogma. Um, and so a lot of these a lot of times when these questions are answered in those ways that they're one right answer uh, that kind of you know raises my suspicions a little bit um, particularly because there are things in which that's the case um, and there are elements of basketball in which that's the case but basketball is one of the reasons i love it and one of the reasons it's so much fun to analyze and break down it is a very complex sport with a lot of moving pieces um, with opponents that can react to you all this stuff is going on and so usually the answer isn't that there's one answer right yeah. usually it's complicated and it, there's a lot of factors that go into it and so generally like I say I'm very suspicious of times when you can say conclusively this is it it's black and white it's obvious and everyone who thinks the opposite way are just Neanderthals uh, all
1: right one more question and then also I, i'm I'm warning you I didn't tell you about this ahead of time but I am gonna make you like give me like one hard and fast opinion here at, at the end which I know might <laughs> might be anathema to you you might even force me to cut it out but uh so the question that I had though and this is something that I think a lot of people you know I'm kind of an outsider as well I'm not doing as as much analysis as you are from a statistical standpoint but did you have a basketball background before you started in a front office and then as a follow up to that like how did you learn the game and convince people that you knew enough that they should actually listen to you on questions other than just okay Ben uh, what do the stats say on this one
2: Uh, so it's very interesting because it is a certainly a big challenge you know coming into an NBA organization in the role that I came in as Um, you know I came in into the blazers as um, you know at first as part-time as a statistical analyst for them and then eventually as the the basketball analytics manager um, and so like you're saying so I didn't have any kind of what you call a traditional basketball background in the sense that it's not that I had uh, played at any kind of high level um, and so I think that at first I mean one is I've been a fan for a long time um, and I'd studied the game in a fair amount of depth for a long time and so before I joined the blazers I volunteered volunteered for Dean Oliver, um, who in many ways is kind of the godfather of uh, basketball statistical analysis. Um, and he was with the Denver Nuggets at the time. And, and I volunteered for him and he allowed me to pick um, you know what projects I wanted to work on. Um, and one of the big projects that I did was a lot of uh, was, I mean, it was breaking down film in, in a lot of ways. And so I watched in uh, excruciating detail um, a lot of film and using a framework that he had developed, which starts to teach you some way to think about the game. Um, and then as you're watching Watching film very carefully and kind of fitting it into this framework, you're starting to think much more about the way the game works, and you're starting to learn. Um, and so that kind of takes you down that road. And so then when you start with a team, people—I mean, you can talk to people and have a sense of what they know about basketball and how much basketball they've watched and how much they've thought about basketball. Um, just talking to them and seeing, you know, the kinds of ideas that they have and the ways they talk about things and think about things. And so I think that it was clear to uh, my colleagues that. I knew basketball. That I wasn't, you know, just kind of um, some neophyte who had never seen the game before. Um, And that said, I was also aware that there was a lot I had to learn. Um, Like I said, I knew that from the outside. I was, I was always constantly trying to push to learn more, and it was very difficult from the outside to learn a lot of these more fine-grained details, um, or a lot of the terminology, or exactly how to think and watch the game. And so. I think it's important to come in with the right amount of humility and not think that you have all the answers and understand uh, where your blind spots are and to ask questions and to learn from the people around you who are experts in their field um, and try to you know be a sponge and gather as much information as possible. And so uh, that's what I tried to do is that, you know, I, I may have annoyed many of my, my colleagues with the, the questions that I asked, um, you know, just constantly asking what they were looking at, what they were watching for, um, you know, trying to get a sense of, of their thoughts, understand the terminology and the X's and O's and uh, you know then combined with just being around the conversation sometimes you don't have to ask the questions you just um you just learn so uh, once Terry Stotts came in as the head coach of the Blazers um he's a big believer in statistical analysis and he integrated me into a lot of what they were doing and so I was yeah. um in coaches he, he, meetings and watching been in practice Dallas and, when
1: they had Roland Beach and more of like a coaching support role right was that that kind of informed that philosophy a little bit
2: yeah for sure so I think Terry naturally is um just a very inquisitive insightful person uh, and so I think he would it, you know he's liked this stuff for a while in fact I heard uh, you know I heard stories of his days as an assistant coach for George Carl in the 90s uh, in Seattle when he was dabbling in this stuff he was I, I think you know if, if you looked at who was way ahead of the curve in terms of statistical analysis I think that Terry has probably always been there um, and so uh and you know obviously the methods were more primitive than but they were doing things that I think were were very interesting based on what I've heard. Um, And so, uh, yeah, so then in Dallas, I think he was really exposed to the power of it through Roland Beach, um, and I think really engaged with the data and liked it a lot. And so when he came to Portland, um, it definitely was high on his agenda to make sure that, um, you know, we had... that he was using it, that the staff was using it and learning uh, from it. And he cited that example when he came in. He said he was like, I learned a lot from as an assistant, I learned a lot from Roland. Um, And he encouraged all of our assistants to do the same thing, to really dive into uh, the analysis and and learn it and figure out how it could make them better coaches and help them make better decisions. Um, And so that was just an incredible opportunity for me to be integrated uh, very deeply into um, kind of coaching operations and be able to learn uh you know as much as i could just again so there are questions that i asked of course but even just sitting in a coach's meeting and watching them watch film and hearing what they're discussing um and seeing you know how they make decisions and how they interact with players how they turn what we discuss in a coach's meeting into a drill um you know and into a strategy for the game uh all of that just being able to observe it and and kind of soak it up so that all of a sudden gives you a facility um with the terminology and with the kind of basketball knowledge where uh, now you're farther along the curve and you can start to have conversations in ways that aren't just binding you to, okay, what does this number say?
1: Yeah. And I think that's something that I always try to be aware of in in whenever I'm criticizing it, you know, as we do that live Twitter NBA show, uh, I'll do that. Just always try to be aware of, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, okay. You can criticize coach, you can criticize players, but like, is this what we're talking about? Is this actually something that'd be realistic for a coaching staff to be able to attempt to, or actually be able to, to impart to the players or are you really just asking too much right like you can't just like vulcan mind meld your coaches to your players and just expect that they're going to do whatever you're asking them to do you know there has to actually actually be a process in which you like give them a drill to do this you communicate it there's an opportunity cost to anything that you're going to teach them yeah because you could be teaching them something else during that period so i think that's always something to to be aware of um all right so here we go this is the most annoying fanboy question but I think it's fun fun to ask you this. Uh, who is the best player in the NBA for, for the playoffs? I mean, I think it would have to be LeBron James, right? <laughs> yeah well I, I mean it's i, it, I just I, I gave you an easy I one right because like, uh you know you're you're uh you're so nuanced and whenever i talk to you about stuff it's like oh man i w- i really want him to like give his uh, opinion like i want to like tap in and you're always like well you know it could be this way and like you know i i and <laughs> it's helped me a lot because i need to learn to think that way more i'm a naturally a very opinionated person and so uh, to try to see both sides is it, always good but I, I i just wanted to like get you on there us. and by the way it, its gonna get edited out but ben paused for like five seconds there. Before
2: well, i was trying to i was racking my brain i was like is it gonna be that obvious
1: <laughs> be that <laughs> well that, that that's the question is it obvious to you? it's not it's not a quiz it's it's your your opinion but yeah i mean i think I, I, it's that's got to be it until until further notice but uh yeah uh, all right well this is great so, thanks so much for coming on i actually have uh two accounts at cleaning the glass one for uh for liam to use my intern it's been an invaluable resource so far we use all of their possession stats especially because it filters out garbage time it's actual possessions as well like based on the play-by-play it's not just estimated like you'll get on a lot of the sites and that's just really the tip of the iceberg anything stats related it's awesome uh best of luck with the site the film analysis is amazing as well like the look and feel of the site is fantastic so please check out clean the glass and subscribe i think you'll find it as enjoyable as i have and uh thank